Welcome to the Living with Fire podcast, where we share stories and resources to help you live more safely with wildfire. Hi, I'm Megan Kay, your host and outreach coordinator for the Living with Fire program. On this episode, we are going to do a deep dive into fire ecology in Nevada. We talked to some fire ecologists who are experts in different ecosystems found in Nevada and also just in the western United States. We wanted to get into the science. We wanted to understand how fire affects these different ecosystems historically and today. So enjoy the episode. I'm Christina Rustano. I'm the director of the program and on the faculty at at UNR. Um, I specialize in wildland fire, drought, forestry impacts on um, on terrestrial ecosystems in the West. I used to work more in the forest ecosystems, but um, I'm learning more about the sagebrush ecosystems and and the rangeland ecosystems of the West now that I have my new position at UNR. So I've been here since August 2019, so still relatively new. Um, So excited to hear from you guys. And to give you a little bit of background on me, I I am a, I studied art, (laughs) fine arts, you know, like I studied printmaking and book arts. Um, And so I'm a liberal liberal arts person, but I did... um, Spent five years working as a wildland firefighter for NDF and then also North Lake Tahoe Fire. So I have a little bit of background in the ecology just from what I was taught when I was doing treat, you know, field treatments and everything. Um, so I'm kind of that. I think Christina pointed out last uh, last interview. I'm like the the straight man. You know, I'm the person who will probably like challenge you on terms and uh, kind of unpack any sort of rhetoric. So if I slow you down or interrupt you to explain anything. Uh, don't be offended. It's just me trying to understand. And then, I, you know, I've done research and I've, I've read your guys' work, so I have a good idea of what's going on. But uh, so I'm Ali Urza. I'm a research ecologist with the Rocky Mountain Research Station, um, which is a uh, in the research arm of the U.S. Forest Service. Um, I'm based out of Reno, Nevada, and I consider myself a plant community ecologist. Um, I'm especially interested in the drivers of vegetation patterns and change. Um, And a lot of my research focuses in the Great Basin, um, largely in Nevada, um, at least for the last, oh, six or seven years or so, I've been um, largely focused in uh, the Nevada portion of the Great Basin. Um, I study the ways that plant communities and ecosystems respond to fire and climate change and um, other drivers like invasive species. I guess I don't remember exactly how you phrased the question, but kind of how, what interests me or what kind of drives me in this regard. Um, I grew up in Nevada. I actually grew up in Reno and then I left for a long time. And um, I feel just super excited to be able to be back in this area. This is definitely kind of the Great Basin is like my soul region. Um, I think it's a very underappreciated, but magnificent landscape. And it's, uh, personally challenging to see a lot of the stressors and changes happening in real time in the Great Basin. And I think that um, observation of ongoing changes really motivates my work. Um, And I just love having the opportunity to be able to work in the field in particular in these great landscapes. So. And that was exactly what I was asking. So we'll do uh, Matt next. Um, can you introduce yourself um, and talk a little bit about what interests you about what you do and maybe anything exciting that you're working on right now? Matt Brooks. I'm a supervisory research ecologist for the U.S. Geological Survey Western Ecological Research Center in uh, at the Yosemite Field Station. Um, I'm the PI there. Um, I've been working on fire since 89 um, when I was a master's student. Uh, and most of my work has been in the hot deserts, mostly the Mojave Desert. Um, Ali mentioned the Great Basin might be underappreciated. I would submit Mojave might be even less appreciated, <laughs> especially the standpoint of fire. 
Um, and so one of the things that's drawn me to working on fire in the Mojave is that because of its infrequency, uh, even compared to the Great Basin, um, it's, there hasn't been nearly as much work done in the, in the Mojave as in the Great Basin. And today, there's fewer people working on fire in the Mojave than in the Great Basin by quite a few. Um, and so, although oftentimes I'm asked to talk about fire in the Great Basin, and I do my best, um, I'm, my expertise is really in the Mojave. Um, and so in this podcast, that's probably where most, what I can contribute the most. Um, now you, you might ask why someone at the Yosemite field station is working in the Mojave. Um, I do other things too. Um, I work on Yosemite toads and mountain yellow legged frogs among other things. Um, and so as an ecologist, we do, we're asked to do a lot of things. And as a federal ecologist is, as you know, we all know, um, there's lots of different things that often science is needed for. And, and so that's what got me into some of these other topics. I've been at the Yosemite Field Station since 2007. Um, and previous to that, I was in Southern Nevada at the uh, Henderson Field Office, or Las Vegas Field Office of USGS. Um, probably the niche I have too, other than desert fire, Mojave Desert Fire has been interaction between invasive species and fire. Um, and so I've done work with things like salt cedar and riparian systems um, and um, other species than non-native grasses, mustards, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, I'm still here, still doing it. Been, been working for U.S. Well, it was National Biological Survey. And actually, going back quite a ways, I started working for the federal government sort of on contract right after this, right after the Babbitt administration and NBS was formed. And I was, a, I've been a full-time research scientist since 98. Um, so then we'll move on to Stanley Kitchen. Um, if could you introduce yourself and tell us what interests you about your field of study? Stan Kitchen. I'm with the the Rocky Mountain Research Station, uh, like Alley, only on the other side of the Great Basin in in uh, uh, my my office, uh, as rarely as I see it nowadays with uh, with our COVID lockout or whatever we want to call it, is in Provo, Utah. Um, um, I'm, a, uh, as I said, a research botanist. And so maybe a, a, a little bit different uh, angle on things in that um, I'm very much interested in the interaction of of uh, plant communities and disturbance, uh, fire being one of those disturbances, but grazing or or uh, uh, drought or, or a number of different other kinds of disturbances can be important as well. And um, um, and I'm interested in the whole plant community, how that adjusts to or interacts with disturbance, but also individual species, how they're adapted for uh, for uh, uh, those disturbance uh, events or patterns of disturbance so that they can continue to persist on the landscape. Um, uh, I have found a real niche or, or interest in looking in historical patterns. We can, uh, if we can find ways to uncover or, or um, uh, open up understanding to the past, it can tell us a lot uh, uh, in our present uh, or about our present circumstances without having to wait a, a, a long periods of time. So I like that intersection between, between uh, uh, history or natural history and science and, 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 ha and then trying to figure out how, how we can uh, uh, unpack that for, for, for uh, things that are happening in the world today that, that makes sense for us. So uh, that's uh, been, been my career and I work uh, in the Great Basin as well as in, other parts of Utah and the Intermountain West, primarily Nevada and Utah, then a little bit of work in Idaho and other areas as well. Awesome, and that's why I reached out to all of you guys is kind of to understand the history of fire in these very different ecosystems in Nevada. Um, like you mentioned, Matt, like the Mojave is very different than the Great Basin, and even within the Great Basin, <laughs> there's like a huge variety. Um, so thank you guys for all introducing yourselves. Um, I'm even more excited to talk to you now. <laughs> um, I, when doing research on this podcast, 
a term that kind of that ex- that uh, I guess it's a common term in in ecology and fire ecology, but it's something that I noticed and as someone who doesn't have an ecology background helped me understand this topic and that term is fire regime. Um, you guys all have it, it appears in a lot of your guys' research. And so I wanted to quickly unpack that term a little bit and talk about um, what is a fire regime and what uh, how we use it to understand fire behavior and how we use it to study the history of fire. So I'm going to kind of you guys can raise your hand who wants to go first, but because <laughs> I don't have anyone in mind who wants to address this first. But who would, uh, I, I, yeah, let's just talk about what a fire regime is. So Stan, why don't you go first? Sure, I'd be, be happy to. First of all, I'd like to to use a quote from uh, Cecil Frost that I think uh, really establishes uh, an understanding. He, uh, This quote I've used a number of times, he says, it is now apparent that fire once played a role in shaping all but the wettest, the most arid, or the, mo- the most fire-sheltered plant communities in the United States. And I would add to that, that fire has been a part of vegetation um, almost since plants emerged and began growing on dry land. Uh, the coal records and other records uh, make it very clear, especially during periods of time when we had high oxygen levels, when even wet vegetation would burn, that plants have been kind of adjusting and evolving and, and adapting to fire as a part of their environment for a very long time. So that's fire, fire regime. We usually break down into, uh, we'll we'll describe a fire regime based not on one fire. One fire doesn't tell us much about a fire regime, but but, but uh, we describe a fire regime in terms of patterns of fire, patterns through time, patterns across space, and and uh, um, and some some other factors. For example, uh, uh, patterns that might be important in a fire regime or the frequency of fire. How often might a fire return to the same place on the landscape, or what season of the year that fire would occur? That's that's also part of the temporal or uh, uh, portion of, of a fire regime, um, and uh, uh, connected to that. Is the regularity of fire? Is it something that's almost on a regular pattern? Uh, is it synchronized with drought or some other factor? Is there some way that that and that, that that's non-fire uh, related, but certainly important? Uh, the spatial pattern of fire is also important. Is it, are fires large? Are they small? Are they continuous? Are they patchy? Uh, all of those are important portion of this thing we call fire regime. And finally, there's things like fire intensity. How hot does a fire burn? How long does it burn hot? Or how severe is a fire? How large of an impact might it have on the on the vegetation in a landscape? That would generally what we refer to as severity. And then sometimes a portion of, of uh, a fire regime is, is it a human-caused fire regime with human ignitions? Um, uh, are Native Americans here, but all... Uh, hunter-gatherer societies across the world through time have used fire as a very important tool. So human fire regimes versus uh, um, uh, natural fire regimes, which is, except for a few places where you have volcanoes, it means lightning, um, uh, uh, are, are another way of describing or getting at this, this idea of what's the pattern of fire through space and through time on a landscape. And all of those factors, the temporal factors, the spatial factors, and the other factors interact. So if you have frequent fire, it's more likely to be low severity or low intensity um, uh, and oftentimes smaller fires. Less frequent fire is more likely to be large fires, high severity, or high intensity fire. So there's those interactions always going on within those different um, uh, measures or metrics of, of fire. Yeah, is um does it did that Matt Ali? Do you guys want to add anything or like maybe maybe also some context is like how we use fire regimes as well? Since you threw a quote out there, Stan, I'll throw another one, <laughs> and it has to do with you know fire regimes can also be characterized as fire over space and time, and um, one of the things about the Mojave in particular is that there's a wide range of variations in fire over space and time. 
And uh, Robert Humphrey in 74, he had a seminal publication on fire in the deserts of North America. And his quote was, because of the inescapably close correlations between prevalence of fire and the amount of fuel, deserts are characteristically less affected by fire than most ecosystems. However, even though fire frequency and severity may be relatively low in any rating scale, their, their effects on the ecosystem may be extreme. And the point being is, is that in a place like at the more arid end of the spectrum with a lower fuel end of, fuel end of the spectrum in southern Nevada, especially at the lower elevations, fire can be very infrequent. Um, but when it does happen, it can be a really significant ecological and management event. Um, and because the fire regimes vary so dramatically, even over the space of a couple miles as you go up in elevation or down in elevation. And so I would just add that, you know, fire regimes are sort of characteristics of, they can be characteristics of very local scales. They could be a watershed. They can be a north facing slope on a watershed that has a different fire regime than um, the, 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 the desert that's down below it that the watershed spreads down to. Because fire might occur over time relatively frequently at those upper elevations, but as soon as it hits to the bottom of the watershed, there's not enough fuel to carry it down into the flats and into the basins. And so um, I think that's one thing just to add is that it can vary, regimes can vary really locally over time, but then also they can vary over, over centuries, decades and centuries with changing climates. So you might have vegetations that move up slope and down slope. It's really been dramatic in the Mojave in that regard over time because you have such a wide range of cover from less than 5% shrub cover to, to, to you know, 40%, 45% at the top of mountains in the same geographical area. Um, and so that would be the main thing that I would add to that is that it can vary dr tremendously over short uh, landscape features, uh, but which makes it really difficult to manage sometimes in that context. I think that one thing when I was thinking about the questions that you sent us, um, one thing that I kept thinking about was how our ability to understand historic fire regime um, is really complicated and it's very challenged in places like Nevada or arid ecosystems, um, especially, well, for a couple of factors. So one, like the, the less frequent uh, fires are on the landscape, the fewer records we have of them over long periods of time. And when we think about fire regime, like Stan said, having a single fire doesn't give us a lot of information about a fire regime. We really need multiple fires to understand kind of the spatial and temporal pattern. And when we have pretty relatively few fires on the landscape, we just have kind of a more limited ability to understand the longer term patterns. And um, because the occurrence of fires are is really driven by temporal variability and weather conditions, like Matt said, or spatial variation over small scales. Um, the fewer records we have, the harder it is for us to understand kind of what that pattern looks like. Um, and then the other side of it is uh, the form that the record that fire records take um, is a lot more challenging in ecosystems that tend to experience higher severity fires um, with. Uh, that, that are stand replacing or ecosystem re or vegetation replacing. Um, so the ecosystem types that we have really good records of fire for are like, for example, ponderosa pine ecosystems where we tend to have high frequency, low severity fires that leave um, a record of fire in the form of fire scars that we can date at an annual resolution and reconstruct over um, various spatial scales. And in desert ecosystems, we don't have those high precision uh, records of fire. So our understanding of historic fire regimes is a lot more limited. And uh, there's a lot of debate over what historic fire regimes looked like in desert ecosystems, um, really driven by that kind of lower fidelity of uh, fire records. During a wildfire, firefighters have a lot to do. Make it easier for firefighters to defend your home. Create defensible space now. Defensible space is an area between a house and an oncoming wildfire where the vegetation has been managed to reduce the wildfire threat. Proper defensible space doesn't mean removing all vegetation, though. By following the Lean, Clean, and Green rule, you can keep your property safe while preserving its natural beauty. 
Learn more about Defensible Space in our guide, Fire Adapted Communities, The Next Step in Wildfire Preparedness. You can find the guide in the resources section of our website at livingwithfire.com. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's one thing that uh, I think part of the reason why this is such an interesting topic to me and I think will be to our viewers is trying to understand um, what, like, what role fire played in the ran- in the land- Nevada landscape historically, so that we can get an idea of how it's changed due to the f- due to many factors. Um, and I like the idea, you know, I like to imagine you guys as like detectives, you know, trying to solve these mysteries. And you were talking about um, like these documents, like tree scars, or or something you can point to and say, "Hey, look, there was a fire here." Because you, you can look at this tree ring. Um, what? This is not on the questions I asked. I sent you guys. This is just my me <laughs> kind of improving here. Um, quick, like real quickly. Do you, can you kind of explain some of the ways uh, you guys investigate and try to uh, use any sort of like you speculate, but then you try to you know back that up with research and evidence. And what type of things are you looking at in order to? Um, in your research in order to kind of like fill in the gaps and give people a history of what, uh, f- what role fire played in the landscape. Um, and then we can go, let's just go in the same order. So Stan, do you want to start with that one? As far yeah, go ahead. First, I'd like to start with when, when we were talking about fire in Nevada or fire in the Great Basin, uh, and I'll maybe without thinking too much, uh, use those interchangeably. The Great Basin and Nevada are not exactly the same geography, but but uh, close enough for our purposes, I hope, um, that um, we have over 100 uh, mountain ranges, and each of those are somewhat unique from, from each other. They're, uh, and then they're separated by these dry valleys. And so um, uh, my emphasis has been working in the mountain systems and and uh, Matt and, and Allie spent a lot of time in the valleys. And so um, uh, I'm part of my purpose will be to make sure that the mountains are well represented of what's going on in the, in those hundred or so mountain ranges, hundred plus mountain ranges. And there's a lot we don't know yet, but there, but we have learned a lot about uh, uh, the, the ecosystems and the place of fire in those ecosystems. And one of the ways we do that is through dendrochronology, which is the study of tree rings. And the very simple explanation is trees produce a new growth ring on the just under the bark on an annual basis. So as a tree gets older, it's it's put it's uh, producing a new ring, and those rings um, can capture uh, uh, um, information about the environment as they are produced, and so they produce a sort of a history of the local environment, including things such as fire, and. Um, and be, be oftentimes fire will injure that the tree without killing the tree, and that injury is captured. And and uh, ponderosa pine is the one of the better trees for recording not just a single fire but multiple fires. Now these are fires that tend to burn along the ground and in and maybe into the brush or sh- uh, small trees, but are not the big crowning fires that usually make the news where all trees are killed and you're left with kind of a moonscape. These are these are uh, low severity, low intensity fires and uh, or ground fires, surface fires. So often uh, a tree, when it once it's been injured once, it can be injured multiple times, bark will fall off of that and it will leave an injury area that's easily recognizable on the trunk of a tree, kind of a triangular pattern. And as we look in that that injured area without bark, uh, there will be char from fires and and uh, uh, evidence uh, within within those growth rings, a pattern of growth rings of, of of those injuries that by cutting a cross section through that, we can examine the growth rings and see right to the year when those fires occurred in the past. And and uh, uh, and so. Um, it's not uncommon in some places where fire is frequent on the landscape. We might see evidence of anywhere from from um, a few to uh, uh, 10 or 20 fires recorded in a particular tree. And then if we gather information from multiple trees, 
say in a watershed or for, on, or on a hill slope or across an elevational gradient, then we can start putting together ideas about the pattern of fire, both through time and space on that landscape. And uh, that's been a lot of what I've done uh, in some of the mountains of Nevada. There's There's been others, some other researchers that have worked in uh, the, the Sheep Mountains and, and the Clover Mountains and uh, Irish Mountain in Nevada. I've worked in the Snake Range and the Shell Creek Range. Uh, those are areas where ponderosa pine is found. And so it's easier to make this kind of a study, though, though I, I have I have observed uh, fire scars in uh, not just ponderosa pine, but limber pine, bristlecone pine, white fir, Douglas fir, Engelman uh, uh, spruce, even quaking aspen at times can form uh, distinguishable fire scars. So it's 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 just a little harder when you don't have that that species like ponderosa pine helping you out. So so then we we um, we can make these temp these these um, histories of that are uh, connected to a particular tree, uh, and again with multiple trees on a landscape, we can put together both. Uh, patterns of uh, spatial patterns as well as temporal patterns of of how fire is on the landscape and sometimes when the fires are high severity and they kill all the plants then then you can sample those trees and know the year that they died in also as a as a way of getting at those records or even when a, a forest is opened and opened up because of that kind of a high severity fire you get new trees established afterwards the the dates on when those trees uh, first started growing can also help tell you about um, the last event of a fire. I love looking at tree rings. My entire, <laughs> all of my dissertation work was a giant tree ring study. So I, there you go. I, I love looking at tree scars. So I'm going to circle back and then after, because I want to ask Matt and Allie something, but I'm going to circle back and ask about um, the changes in fire that you've noticed um, historically. But first, I want to go to Matt and kind of ask. So we just heard about how you study the history of fire with ponderosa pines and in forests where there are stands of trees. How do you study the history of fire in the Mojave Desert? Yeah, so I think a good segue from what Stan described was was an example from the ecotone between the Mojave and the Great Basin. That includes individual sort of sentinel trees that that dendrochronology has been done on. So I'm talking about the sorts of trees Stan's talking about where you get hundreds of them across the landscape and you can figure out spatial patterns over space and time. Individual tree, much more difficult, but it provides a tremendous amount on information about the general frequency of fire in an area. So I'm talking about these individual pines that are in an area that's now currently sagebrush and pinyon and juniper. And there's an example from, you mentioned uh, the Irish mountains, there's Mount Irish uh, publication where for hundreds of years up until about the mid 1800s when the ranchers came in, there were fires that occurred sometimes, sometimes less than, you know, a decade between fires, but pretty, you know, regular burning in this region. And then as soon as the ranchers came in, the, the burning almost ceased, that record in the tree. And the inference is, is, is that there was a tremendous amount of burning by Native Americans, probably for things like perennial grass production, pinion, pinion production, seed production. Um, so there was, I think that in the Mojave, there's some inferences. Well, that's actual evidence, but there's also inferences from traditional knowledge from native tribes about, especially in riparian areas for managing mesquite. Uh, mesquite was a very valuable crop um, and you'd get higher production if you were to, if you were regular, regularly clear Do you have around any, them. Uh, could you tell us why mesquite was such a valuable crop? Just out of curiosity. It, it's a, it's a high protein um, uh, food for making meal. Mm, cool. Um, kind of like the pinion seeds but it's in the it's in the context of riparian systems. Also, um, in a, in a landscape like the Mojave, where water is at a premium, and really water dictates whether human habitation is possible, even today, um, in regular burning around spring sites would increase spring flow. We know that today. It's it clearly happened in the past. There's evidence 
that that was done in the past. Also, um, basketry materials, things like milkweed. So is that because um, you're clearing away anything like dead vegetation and buildup? Like, is that why? Yeah, you well, basically, basically it's evapotranspiration, reducing vegetation amount. You increase the amount of flow to the surface uh. um, for a period of time. Um, and so we infer a lot from on past um, fire frequencies and, and, and from traditional knowledge that's been passed down. Also, like I, I gave an example of embedded trees, but other evidence is um, there's, there's a very rare occurrence. I know of, of a couple of publications that are actually um, publications looking at seismic events. And basically it's, 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 you have the strata that are laid down in a, in a deposit over time. Every once in a while you get a carbon lens from a fire and the strata, uh, the, 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 they use the, the earthquake scientists basically use those carbon lenses to carbon date them. And where there's a displacement of a carbon lens at a certain level, they can determine that there was a seismic event. So in the Western Mojave, there's a, there's a couple of examples of publications done by seismologists to look at earthquake histories that can give you an idea of layers of carbon, charcoal carbon, basically, we're talking about, um, and an idea in a, in, a, in a watershed anyway, frequency of fire. Um, but most of the evidence really has been kind of working back the other direction is, is been on documenting vegetation changes over time and inferring the regimes that go along with them mm-hmm. based on current relationships. So pack, mat, pack rat middens, for example, are, are pack rats are big rats that, that have big piles of things and rocks with vegetation material and based they bring vegetation material in there that represents the area around their mm-hmm. their little den and based with urine and feces deposited over them over time it crystallizes and almost mummifies it and creates records over time that build up or stacked on top of each other in these usually rock crevices that can document changes in vegetation in the surrounding landscape based on the composition as well as the relative proportions of the vegetation. Um, and so those can document back to almost 50,000 years. Um, I don't do that work myself, but- <laughs> are, there pl- are, those in, are, are those present in Nevada, in like Southern Nevada? Yes, cool. yes they are. And they actually are better preserved as I understand it in drier, warmer, drier climates. And so it's really a valuable thing in the hot deserts to determine vegetation composition over time. So for example, there's evidence that different middens up a watershed show that vegetation types like pinion and juniper ecotones with the, like black brush have moved up and down thousands of feet in elevation during the Holocene even, which is the last 10,000 years since the last um, ice age. So that's actually a really valuable thing that allows us to look at changes in vegetation um, and then infer the fire regime that would go along with it, especially things related to perennial grasses. Um, and, and lastly, um, Pleistocene during the Pleistocene ice, ice ages waning and waxing and waning, um, the levels of the, 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 um, the lakes, the Pleistocene lakes in the Mojave, as they go up, it's a wetter period. As they go down, it's a drier period. And so you infer what's happening in the greater landscape around them in terms of vegetation formations from grasslands to woodlands, mostly. Not so much forest, forest up on the mountaintops, but oak woodlands even were pretty prevalent in the Mojave um, during different times during the Pleistocene. Um, and, you know, these, these go back, the Pleistocene goes back about two and a half million years. The Mojave Desert is considered to have been a desert region anywhere for the last two to five million years. Hmm. So there's different scales of time that you can go back and different types of evidence to infer it's not direct evidence of fire really like what Stan described with the, with the charred remains on the rings and the trees, but it gives us a general idea about the prevalence and, and type of fire that was occurring and in, in, in general, the fire regimes. Thanks for painting that picture. Yeah. Cause it's, uh, it's really interesting for me, for me. And I think it will be for our listeners to kind of understand how you guys are piecing this stuff together. Um, and then at, Ali, I want to ask you the same question um, based on like the valleys and the Great Basin, maybe where there's big, where there's sagebrush and not trees. So a lot of the um, overall topics that 
Matt and Stan just talked about also apply to Sagebrush and Pinion Juniper Systems, um, which are kind of the two major ecosystem types that I work in. Um, but uh, so like, for example, in Pinion Juniper Ecosystems, we do have some studies that have direct evidence of fire. Um, pinion and juniper species typically don't survive fire well, but occasionally um, pinion pine will form scars if it's on the edge of a fire perimeter. And so there have been studies that have cross-dated fire scars from pinion pine um, to provide kind of direct evidence of fire history within particular locations. Um, and then, you know, we additionally can use uh, stand ages, so the ages of trees within a woodland stand to infer something about um, the disturbance history. Pinion and juniper species typically don't establish right after a fire like more montane species might. Um, they might take decades to come in after a fire. Um, so they're not exact dates in the same way that they might be in other fi more fire adapted ecosystems. Um, but that is helpful um, evidence to help us understand kind of the general uh, trends over time. Um, but what Matt said about inferring uh, disturbance history and fire history based on vegetation patterns, I think is really key in um, some of these more arid ecosystems. And one of the things, going back to a point that Stan made earlier too, um, one of the uh, lines of evidence that we can use when thinking about general fire patterns or disturbance patterns through time is uh, using our understanding of the traits of the species involved um, in their life history strategies. And we know, for example, um, based on kind of more contemporary observations, as I mentioned, pinion and juniper typically don't survive fire, um, and they often take many decades to reestablish following fire. Um, so, for example, the presence of an older aged persistent pinion juniper woodland stand um, tells us something about uh, the prevalence of fire in its past. And so we know that, you know, if there is a persistent pinion juniper woodland stand um, with, you know, many trees that are several hundred years old, um, we can infer that there hasn't been fire on that landscape within several hundred years or at least large large enough fires to um, kind of alter that vegetation pattern over the broader landscape. Um, similarly with sagebrush, sagebrush, the dominant sagebrush species in Nevada, big sagebrush, um, isn't particularly adapted to fire. It doesn't resprout after fire. Um, its seeds don't disperse very far. Um, so especially in the drier landscapes, sagebrush takes um, at least a couple of decades to recover after fire. And so um, we can use that information or that understanding of the species life history strategies uh, to understand that, you know, very frequent fire on the order of, a, you know, a couple of years of rotation was probably unlikely over long time periods um, in sagebrush ecosystems. Um, yeah. Stan had his hand up. Yeah. I just do want to make sure that I say that all of these patterns are extremely variable through space. And one of the interesting things about Nevada and the Great Basin um, is just how variable uh, fuel composition, weather, soil depth, and productivity in general is across even very short spaces. And so fire history might have been very different in a valley bottom versus just upslope versus higher upslope on, a, on rockier soils. Um, that have that are less productive and have um, lower grass and forb cover that can kind of carry more frequent fires. Yeah, I like what Ali had to share in terms of uh, sagebrush. We we've done quite a bit of work, and uh, others be, before me at looking at well, if if um, uh, in terms of the frequency or the the length of period of time necessary for there to to if you're going to have a sagebrush system what's the minimum amount of fire or the minimum period of time without fire that, that can still sustain a, a sagebrush system. And, and uh, uh, certainly we know that uh, mountain sagebrush, um, so there are different subspecies of this big sagebrush that Ali uh, uh, alluded to. And the, in montane systems that the, the subspecies that lives in, in mountains um, tends to be able to come back much more quickly than it can in the valleys. And so we say, well, if um, if if sagebrush can come back in two to three decades, 
there's not a lot of there's there's still some disagreement about how long it, it takes and it can differ on the same spot from one fire to the next through time but but let's say on average somewhere between two and and uh, 20 and 40 years uh, oftentimes a sagebrush stand in the mountains comes back and it, and it's and it's pretty um, uh, uh, reached its near its climax or that level of of, of uh, well-established sagebrush community, then if you have a fire regime in which you have fire uh, occurring every 10 years, you know it wasn't a sagebrush community um, uh, on that on that particular location. Uh, if it was, if you have some record that indicates that fire may have occurred 60, 70, 80 year intervals, then then that may indicate that it was very compatible with a mountain sagebrush community. If it's on uh, if it's in an area that's subject to encroachment by trees of pinyon juniper, but sometimes it's fir, sometimes it's ponderosa pine, um, and you're going 200 years or 300 years without fire, then that same landscape may convert from a shrubland now to a forest or a woodland. So uh, that interaction between the vegetation that's going to dominate on the site and the frequency of fire on that site uh, it can be very dynamic and change through time subject to that that frequency of of, of when that disturbance events takes place and and how often um, uh, or where the sources of 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 new propagules seed or whatever to repopulate the location after a fire event Communities located in wildfire-prone areas need to take extra measures to live safely. There are many ways to prepare communities and properties for wildfire, including creating and maintaining adequate defensible space and hardening homes to withstand wildfire. This could mean altering or replacing certain components of the home. Our Wildfire Home Retrofit Guide will help you better prepare your home and communities for wildfire. You can find the guide in the resources section of our website at livingwithfire.com. It's important to, to point out, and I would love to hear your your perspective, either Ali or or Stan on this. There's just there's a lot of different species and types of sagebrush in Nevada. And so the and, and there are the dynamics of, of what other plants exist within the sagebrush community modify how fire behaves on the landscape. And so Ali, I don't know if you want to say a bit about that. I have to think about it for a second. So there are so there are kind of multiple parts of that question. So so yes, there are different types of sagebrush that do seem to there are different subspecies that have been identified that do seem to have different traits and have different abilities to respond to fire. Um, but probably more importantly is um, the differences in climate that those subspecies occupy, the differences in the plant community that they um, coexist with, and so. Certainly when thinking about kind of drivers of patterns of fire, um, the abundance of fine fuels. So um, in, historically, these would have been uh, primarily uh, perennial grasses, but, but in kind of more contemporary terms, and this is also sort of moving into the conversation about cha- recent changes in fire regimes, um, we now have a large abundance of non-native annual grasses, which provide a more continuous fuel surface um, at the lower elevations where they tend to um, dominate the most. Um, And that can increase the frequency of fire. It it increases the length of the fire season. Um, Those uh, annual grasses also, such as cheatgrass, tend to be uh, very adapted to fire. So fire can actually serve as like an inducing event um, that can facilitate the the initial invasion of those grasses or um, increase their dominance on the landscape, which then um, gets into the, what's termed the annual grass fire cycle. Um, A lot of Matt's work is focused on this. So I definitely um, don't want to talk too much about about that side of things, but certainly um, there's so much variation in the role that fire plays across the landscapes in Nevada and especially in kind of the Great Basin portion of Nevada that I'm most familiar with that even just moving, you know, uphill from the valley bottom to a couple hundred meters higher in elevation, you have completely different landscapes that that exist under very different 
uh, climate regimes um, with very different fuel compositions. And the role of fire and the interaction between vegetation and fire um, is just so different between them that it's very hard to make kind of blanket statements about fire regime in sagebrush ecosystems, for example. I, do I have permission to complicate the conversation? Yes, but I also wanted to put make sure you guys are thinking about because I do want to uh, because it, it's come up with both Christina, Stan, and Ellie. I do want to think start also thinking about how fire regimes have changed. Like mm-hmm. you're talking about cheatgrass, n- invasive species, and then how the relationship between fire and vegetation and humans has uh, changed these ecosystems. So I didn't, I don't want to derail you, but I also want to like nope. put that in your brain to start thinking. about. So, so I can complicate it and segue. How about that? Sounds good. <laughs> so the, my only point on the complication is that um, the discussion here in the great basin with sagebrush has been about how different species vary in general, in terms of their, their resilience to fire. So like, sort of like their evolutionary history with fire and their ability to, to persist in a landscape, that also has fire. Um, so there can be variations also within those species, local ecotypes. One of the challenges we have in the Mojave um, is that we have these things called sky islands. The top of the mountains are little remnant Great Basin enclaves. So they're little Great Basin landscapes on the top of a mountain and the bottom in the valleys, it's creosote and saltbush and Mojave. And the islands in the mountains are climatically and vegetation wise, these little species compositions that make them Great Basin. Um, and so understanding how those species, how those, how, how a great, how a big sagebrush in the Mojave, how res- is it, has it have the same resilience as a big sagebrush that's in a flat in, in the Great Basin. And so we, we rely a lot on information from the Great Basin to infer what's going on in the, high, in the Mojave. But really, um, that's a big question that sort of remains. But the conversation is kind of going more towards sort of fire ecology. And so I'll steer, steer you back to what you were talking about, wanting this to go. And that is how our things have changed. So um, I had mentioned about how the fire frequency in the Mount Irish area, the inference is that the, the history of, uh, of indigenous burning was, was changed when the ranchers came. One of the other things that we found lower elevations, there's actual, you start getting into evidence of fire through historical documents. So early part of the 1900s, uh, especially into the, well, into the 20s, 30s, and 40s, there's agency documents in the Mojave that exist. A lot of them from Lincoln County, Nevada, which is ecotone between the Great Basin and the Mojave, where there's a lot of ranching going on, um, that, that give us an idea about how that had changed things. So the land use of livestock grazing. So in the, around the 30, late thirties and forties, there's evidence that there was actually an estimate that about 20% of the black brush in Southern Nevada was burned by ranchers to try to promote more forage in particular perennial grasses. This is a period of time at the end of a multi-decadal period of higher rainfall. And then in the late thirties, early forties, there were some really high rainfall years. So the obs- my guess is, is that the observation by the ranchers was, hey, there's a bunch of Indian rice grass, grama grass that's burning, that, that lives in between these black brush. If we could burn the black brush, the Pringle grass would come up, we'd have more forage for the livestock. And so they ended up burning a lot. And um, there was a lot of records from that, that, that are still in existence. I, I actually have got them from some of the South- Caliente Field Office in Southern Nevada being one of them. And there were photographs they took. So there's some actually really great evidence from records, photographs, journals, um, and reports that indicates that there was a fair amount of burning going on at that time. From the standpoint of black brush, we now consider black brush something that doesn't survive well with fire. And so it's interesting to kind of think about, there's a lot of black brush in Southern Nevada today. If there was all that burning going on, was there a lot more if it hasn't recovered? But some of the old photographs we've used, we've revisited these photos from the 30s and 40s and found black brush in places that show completely stand replacing black brush slicked off just dirt a year after the fires. And so there's this is another sort of evidence of more how how the settlement had changed, started to change fire regime and some of the evidence we use photographic evidence to figure out maybe how resilient things like even black brush might be. And you go in to think about more, more, th- more, you know, more deeply, 
and um, black brush at the edges of its ranges probably is more resilient because it's, it's in an interface with other vegetation types where fires occurred more frequently. I found black brush resprouting and the interface with the Sierra Nevada mountains in the far western Mojave. And, um, and it's on the edge, again, of a different fire regime. And so when you find vegetation types, whether it's Great Basin sagebrush or whether it's you know, big sagebrush or whether it's, it's black brush or whatever, that's far ranging. At its interface with other vegetation types that burn more frequently, there's a strong likelihood that the, that that species has a different resilience than it does in other areas because it's experienced a different historical fire regime than maybe it occurred in the center of its range. Um, and so that's a sort of a description of another way we look at fire regimes. It's also something about the changes of fire. The interesting thing about so I'll just finish this little data dump. With those fi- those photos, some of those photos from 40s show landscapes covered in red brome and cheatgrass in the 40s after they burn blackbrush, and that's an elevation zone today where we find the brome species, both those species, to be most prevalent, and the biggest fire contributor is really in blackbrush and in the upper elevation, the creosote bush. So it's kind of fascinating that back there. This, this, there was the, the, the thing that we think more of as something that's evolved since the 70s, at least in the Mojave with, with red brome. Photo evidence suggests that, that it was very prevalent post-fire back during that period of time. And it only is, was recorded, red brome anyways, from North America in the late 1800s. So relatively quickly, it got to a point where it can cover a landscape um, in southern Nevada after blackbrush burn as early as the 40s. Was I mean, did people consider it, I mean, it wasn't that much of a hazard. I'm sure, like, people wanted those grasses for forage for animals and things like that. Well, it's more the perennial grasses that, that, that have higher nutritional con- protein content. Also, the annual grasses, when they dry out, they're high silicone. They're not as palatable. They're definitely palatable. But, but what's interesting is that the series of reports, it shows how, and these were these were actually from a predecessor of, Intermountain Research Station. I forget what it was. It's called. There's something Las Vegas Grazing District or something. Stan, you probably know more about this history than I do, but there was like about um, Ralph Holmgren was one of them, one of the guys that was on this, and I think he's from the Salt Lake area, if I remember correctly. But um, at any rate, there was about five or six authors on these on these reports, and one of them put an addendum to a report stating that that yeah this did do a good you know i agree with everybody else that the burning did reduce shrub layers quite a bit and and a cover but i'm concerned about this red brome being something that might promote really frequent fires Hmm. nobody nobody told him in any publications or education that that was there's this thing called this grass fire cycle with annual grasses from the mediterranean region and but it was really interesting that that he saw his perception of how much fuel there was, fine fuel, a couple years after fire on the landscape was was significant enough for him to put in writing. And what year was that? It was the, this 40s. report was probably the late 40s. The report was about these field visits. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's some just by chance that was, you know, records that have not been thrown out over the years from agency offices that provide a really, I think, fascinating insight into what was going on in the management side of things during that period of time. Um, and it's not, this is not typical Mojave. This is more of an ecotone region between the Mojave and the Great Basin, but it is in Southern Nevada. So, so I'll just add, I don't believe that anybody was excited to have the, the brome cattle don't care for it. Right. Sheep are the ones that in springtime only will consume the cheatgrass and maybe the brome. I don't know as much about that, but I know, but I'm not sure that sheep were introduced uh, until later. So I'm not sure that, that it was ever considered an advantageous thing to have on the landscape. Mm. Let let me add a little bit of insight. I have uh, available a, um, you know, in 1992, we did a symposium, basically as a annual grass symposium in the Great Basin. 
And I thought that was we were like cutting edge or something until I ran across proceedings of a, of a symposium that was in the late 50s. And it was called the Cheatgrass Symposium. And what have we learned so far about cheatgrass is what it was about. And, and of course, it was a very different perspective then. You think, think late 50s, early 60s, right? I can't remember the exact year of it. But um, many of the papers that were presented in that symposium talked about cheatgrass in a favorable way. That it uh, on that it they talked about the biomass available of production compared to uh, uh, some systems when cheatgrass is not present. Um, uh, sheep came into some portions of the Great Basin, um, uh, certainly in the Utah portion and eastern Nevada. Uh, as early as the uh, 1870s. And so that the, they'd been around for a while. Cattle certainly uh, a little bit longer than, than sheep, but both of them quite, for quite a long period of time. And they saw cheatgrass as a, um, a valuable forage that was not always dependable is a good way to put it, I think, and, and somewhat short-lived, but still, still uh, um, portrayed. Not, now, this is not all of the presentations, but, but many of the presentations portrayed it as, as something um, perhaps more favorable than we see it today. And, and the potential effects of fire either were not considered very much or they were considered in a more favorable light since uh, fire could get rid of sage uh, sagebrush and, and sagebrush was considered uh, part of the enemy that we needed to get rid of so we could grow more grass. And so um, uh, that opened my eyes up a little bit in terms of of how long people have been looking at, at cheatgrass and, and trying to decide what to do with it. And I'm not sure yet in my own mind, how much progress we've made in 70 years. I, I'll just, I'll just add that um, from a perspective of what drives fire in the Mojave, um, the thing that trumps any of what we've discussed so far is climate for the Mojave. It's fuel limited. So for example, um, what I just described about the burning by in Southern Nevada during the forties, thirties and forties, that was at a period, the end of a period of a multi-year, multi-decadal period of drought from about 1900 to not drought, higher rainfall, 1900 to about 40. From about 1940 to 75, there was a period of very low rainfall in the Mojave, often referred to as the mid-century drought. And I, I don't think I've been able to find a single record of fire from the Mojave during that and then starting in 76 through especially 2006, um, period of higher rainfall, some El Nino years. And, and it was almost like the, the, at that period of time, the um, fire, fire managers were just starting to say, hey, there's fires never happened before. And it's because it's fire oftentimes don't have the historical perspective. They just have how, how long they've been in the field office and that perspective. And, and so fire increased during that period of time really has been, was coincident with increased, increased rainfall. Interestingly, when you talk about Bromus, uh, there's a series of the Nevada test site with Janice Beatley from UCLA um, was produced a lot of the great information on, on an, annual, annual plants and plant communities in Southern Nevada um, starting in the 60s. And the Nevada test site was a place where she was contracted to do surveys. And there's a publication um, that um, one of the people that worked with her, Richard Hunter, wrote. And he basically showed in the records of the Janice Beatley records starting in the 60s up through, I think it was 79, this exponential increase in red brome density. And his publication was, and it, this is red brome invading the test site starting in the 60s. Well, I just told you that there was public, there's pictures in Southern Nevada of it covering a post-fire landscape from the 40s. And his perspective was coming out of the mid-century drought, right? And so red brome was at an area at, at a level where you could identify swaths of it in, in black and white photographs. And, you know, somebody, it was enough there for somebody to make a note of it in a report during the forties. And yet the perception was that it was just invading the Nevada, Southern Nevada in the sixties, more than likely it was knocked back during that mid century drought. So, so some interesting sort of historical perspectives about like Sam was talking about the perspective of cheatgrass then and now. Um, we have to kind of think about the perspective of, in this case, red brome on the landscape, but also the perspective of fire on the landscape um, based on historical context. And oftentimes I try to, I try to describe like the question being, 
you know, where and when is fire of use or could be considered to have positive resource benefits in the Mojave. And I, I always have to say it's in the context of the historical context. And, um, and then of course, what your resource benefit definitions are. But um, really, I think the underlying thing about this, the whole theme of this podcast being history of fire is how does it help us manage today? Mm-hmm. Um, how does it make help us make decisions today, given the history of fire and what we know about it? How does it help us make management deci- decisions today? And all these different things we've been talking about all contribute to that. Fire is best viewed as as a tool, and it's just one of the tools we have in the toolbox. Uh, there, there, there are other tools, um, including doing nothing. But that the, there's consequences to the use of all of the tools. So we need to use those tools as wisely as we can and keep as full a toolbox as we as possible so we have lots of options that we can deal with. Learn from the use of those tools and use them as wisely as possible in a changing and, un, and sometimes unpredictable uh, uh, future that we have in front of us. We've uh, heard a few times today the idea of fire both can be good or bad. And I would go back to a quote the way I started. This one's from Bob Keane. He said, fire is neither good nor bad. Fire is an important ecological process that can produce variable effects. The value of these effects must be interpreted in the context of human desires and needs. So there's this interaction of fire is just a process. It's, it's something that happens. It will always happen as long as there's fuels available and there's any ignition source and enough oxygen in the atmosphere. And we can look at a landscape and say, is it better that we use fire in the timing that we would maybe want to apply it on this particular landscape or some other uh, disturbance process that would get get an ecological outcome that's preferable, or we're just going to let fire happen on its terms Sometimes that's under the most severe fire climate, I think California the last few years, and and uh, we just st- we just get out of the way and let and then try and clean up the mess afterwards. That's where fire has a place because we can decide that or that's where prescribed fire has a place. We can decide when and where and how it's applied. If we just back away and don't use it at all and wait for natural fire to occur, sometimes it's in the wrong time the wrong place, the wrong circumstances, and the results can be much worse. Yeah, what I was thinking about ending on was kind of parallels a little bit of what San was talking about, but I just think it's in the management context, it's really important to emphasize that fire, like any management tool, has trade-offs, and those trade-offs vary um, very quickly through space, um, depending on the ecosystem type that that we're looking at. Um, And the trade-offs are really going to change as we move into the future in different climate conditions um, with different species compositions. We have a lot of non-native species that are um, becoming more prevalent in the Great Basin. And so I just think it's really important, like I completely second the sentiment that they're thinking about fire as good or bad really oversimplifies the issue. Um, It really is an issue. It's a matter of trade-offs among competing values, really, or competing um, conditions on the landscape. And and sometimes there isn't a clear, you know, correct condition that we don't have a a hundred percent clear vision of what historic conditions were. We know the historic conditions were quite variable. We also know that, you know, given the changes that have occurred, it's unlikely that we'll ever be able to fully mimic historic conditions, whatever they might have been. And so I think it's just really important to have transparent and open conversations about the trade-offs involved with all management tools. And um, we still have a lot to learn about what exactly those trade-offs are. And sometimes we see um, huge surprises, you know, related to um, ecological or, you know, economic effects on the landscape. Um, after applying certain management treatments or management approaches. And so anyway, I think that's just my my main takeaway, um, kind of integrating these ecological and management concepts is just that it's really important that that conversation be really transparent and honest about what those trade-offs are um, and the fact that our societal values change through time as well. And so what we're managing for and what we see is 
valuable or good on the landscape changes very rapidly. And so, um, yeah, it's just important to keep that in mind. It often changes more rapidly than the planning processes and laws allow us to, it, it changes at a quicker pace than those do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I worked before I went into research, I worked as an ecologist for the BLM and I would always just laugh at, you know, being out in the field and see these swaths uh, from just a, a, a few decades ago of aerial herbiciding of huge sagebrush stands across ex- huge landscapes. Um, and when I was working there, probably 50% of our annual budget went into sagebrush restoration, replanting, um, and all of that. And it's just, it's, it's a little bit frustrating kind of how quickly, um, the pendulum swings back and forth. Um, but I think that, you know, like I said, I, I think that missing from a lot of those conversations is just really an, an open discussion of what the trade-offs are and being really explicit about what values we're managing for and why. Um, so that, when our when our values do change, we you know have a good understanding of how um, our management can change accordingly. Thank you for listening to the Living with Fire podcast. You can find more stories about wildfire and other resources at livingwithfire.com. The Living with Fire program is funded by the University of Nevada Reno Extension, Nevada Division of Forestry. Bureau of Land Management, and the United States Forest Service.